Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author, Jennifer Chiavarini. Chiavarini is the author of 32 novels, including the critically acclaimed historical fiction and the beloved Elm Creek Quilt series. Her latest novel is Switchboard Soldiers. Publishers Weekly wrote about her latest novel, Kia Varini brings her singular characters to life, including real historical figures, as they become united in the quest to serve their country. Fans of historical fiction will be captivated. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, Switchboard Soldiers, how would you describe the novel? Well, I just uh, in brief, I would say that it's uh, the story of a group of courageous young women who served as telephone operators in France with the United States Army Signal Corps during World War I. Now, at that time, telephones were the most important means of communication between U.S. Army headquarters, allied outposts, and troops in the field. I know we typically, when we think about the old World War II movies we've seen, we, we see people communicating by radio, but that wasn't, that technology wasn't there. Radios existed, but the golden age of radio was still several years away. So telephones were the most important tool to communicate. So the women's perseverance, courage, skill, and dedication not only helped the allies achieve victory, but also convinced back in the in the states convinced an american president and congress and the and the public that women deserve the right to vote so the valiant women of the us army signal corps broke down barriers and they really cleared the way for generations of women that would follow not only in the military although they certainly did that but really in all aspects of public and professional life Sure. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Switchboard Soldiers? You know, I do. Um, like a lot of my novels, this idea came to me while I was researching a previous book. And that, that's typically what happens while I'm investigating one historical figure or a historical event. I will almost invariably stumble upon someone else who is equally compelling and then I'll think, oh my gosh, she really deserves her own book, or they really deserve their own story. And then I will make a note of it and file it away and then return to it at a later date. And that's what happened with Switchboard Soldiers. While I was researching my previous novel, The Women's March, and that was about, um, it, it was about the suffrage movement in the U.S., and it really focused on the 1913 woman's suffrage procession that was organized by Alice Paul and other participants included Maud Malone and Ida B. Wells Burnett. And it was scheduled on the day before President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration to draw attention to the revitalized movement for a constitutional amendment to guarantee women the right to vote. And also they, they chose that date because they wanted to put Woodrow Wilson on notice that although he had dodged the question during his campaign, during his administration, he was going to have to address this issue of woman suffrage, and they were going to be relentless in making sure that he did not ignore or forget them. 
So while I was researching the Women's March, I came across it, and it was almost as an aside in one of the one of the historical uh, studies that I was reading to prepare for writing this book. I was very surprised to learn that later in his administration, the notoriously misogynistic President Woodrow Wilson endorsed and even campaigned for women's suffrage, a cause that he had once vehemently opposed. And I was like, wait a minute, that guy, that Woodrow Wilson (laughs) suddenly thinks that women should be allowed to vote. And the, the, you know, I, I read on to see that one reason for his change of heart was that he had been profoundly impressed by how American women had acquitted themselves during the Great War. And I thought, well, what did they do to so impress him? Because, you know, you are not going to find, a, you know, you would be hard pressed to find people more opposed to women voting than Woodrow Wilson. He didn't even like it when women spoke in public on issues that mattered to them. So I thought, OK, they must have been very impressive indeed. So I kind of filed that idea away. And when I finished writing the Women's March, I thought, okay, I got to go back and find out because the question had been really just piquing my curiosity ever since. And I assumed that he had been impressed by women who served as nurses because their contributions had been known and celebrated. But as I looked more into it, I saw that women contributed in so many other ways. We, have, we, we know about Rosie the Riveter from World War II. Mm-hmm. That iconic image of women who took over for men who went off to fight in World War II in the factories and other workplaces. But I was surprised, in hindsight, I suppose I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised to learn that women also took on those roles in World War I. They served in many capacities, not only in factories, but as postal workers and streetcar drivers and and farm laborers and so many other roles where that had always been the province of men before. And so in addition, though, to learning about all the many roles women fulfilled on the home front, I was astonished and deeply impressed to learn about how they had served over there. And one of the most important roles was as telephone operators. Because again, you know, the, the radios weren't in weren't we did not have that kind of technology for radios to serve that purpose of communication. But it so it was telephones that were used to convey mess in very important messages and military orders between headquarters and troops in the field and with between Americans and with their French and British counterparts. So when General Pershing went over to France when the United States joined the war in 1917, and he was starting to build the infrastructure and get everything ready, he found a telephone system that was really just not up to standard. The American, America, or United States had the best telephone technology at the time, and they had a multitude of extremely well-trained and very qualified telephone operators. But when General Pershing got to France, he found a very different situation. Antiquated equipment, um, less skilled operators, 
And so as one of the first things he did was he started saying, okay, we have to have American technology over here. So male U.S. Army Signal Corps soldiers came over and started putting, connecting the wires and building the switchboards. And they trained male recruits, male soldiers, to man these switchboards that were so crucial to connecting calls. And they would often transfer transfer male telegraph operators into this job. But they soon discovered that this they just weren't as good as the telephone operators <laughs> back in the States. And this was considered women's work. This they just and usually they use a very uh, you know often very sexist rationale for why this was a great job for women. Well, they're more willing to put up with abuse from irate callers, and they like to talk, and you know they're just good at hand you know connecting things, working with their hands. So often their rationale was very sexist, but as a result, the best. Telephone operators in the U.S. were women. And in fact, virtually all telephone operators in the U.S. were women. So when General Pershing said, we need the best telephone operators we can get to take over these jobs because seconds count. If a call isn't connected soon and quickly enough, people will die. Soldiers will die. If calls are connected inaccurately, military orders will not get where they need to go. So when he said he needed the best telegraph operators, that meant American women. Now, at this point, women were not allowed to enlist in the army. Women had recently been allowed to enlist in the Navy. So the Navy was ahead of the army in this regard. They let yeomanettes join the Navy to fulfill a lot of clerical positions and other office work to free up men to go to sea. But the army wasn't quite willing to do that yet. And in fact, in most states, women couldn't even vote. Nevertheless, when General Pershing said he needed the best telephone operators, the U.S. Army Signal Corps began recruiting women for these very, very important roles uh, overseas. That's amazing. Um, I'm curious, from the research that you did, do you have a sense of how many women um, were over there in these positions during the war? Well, I can tell you that as soon as the recruitment notices went out in, you know, in like industry publications like Bell Telephone News and, and you know, flyers were posted up at switchboards across the country, Seven around 7,600 women applied. So they were very eager to serve their country this way. But not everyone who applied could get in. The requirements were quite strict. First, you had to be an exceptional telephone operator. You had to be very good at your job. But you also had to be fluent in English and French <laughs> because you would often be connecting calls between a British officer and a French officer, or more likely an American officer or with the French counterparts over here. And often these soldiers could not communicate with one another. So the telephone operator had to translate on the fly, just on the spot, wow. so that these different people could communicate with each other. And again, accuracy was absolutely essential. But what was also essential was unwavering, unquestioned loyalty and discretion 
because these women would be dealing with very highly sensitive, classified military information. So you had to have people who not only were inherently trustworthy, but were very, very smart. And they knew, you know, they wouldn't get tripped up if someone tried to tried to get, get some secrets out of them. And they also had to be able to listen because these, these, these telephone lines that were stretched, you know, from headquarters to no man's land, they could be tapped into. And the Germans often did. So maybe not often, they occasionally did. Right. So the women had to be alert for certain cues in the line that suggested perhaps the line had been tapped into. So they had to be very, very qualified. And, you know, they accepted a few thousand of maybe uh, 1,200 into the initial screening. But then after that, only a few dozen at a time, eventually numbering into the hundreds, were actually sent overseas to serve in the field. Got it. I'm, I'm curious, when you're planning uh, a historical novel and, and plotting it and you're doing the research, uh, how do you balance the research that you're doing with also the narrative thrust of the novel in terms of including the research that you've done? Well, I, I like to hold to the historical record as much as I can, because I, I've heard, I've gathered from my readers that they really do count on me to do that. You know, like it might be more convenient for me to have the war start in 1912 instead of 1914. <laughs> but, you know, I won't do that. Because, you know, I know readers want me to get it mostly right. So I do a lot of historical research. I set up a, an important timeline and I construct my narrative and develop my characters around that. However, I, I won't sacrifice storytelling just for the sake of making sure I get every single historical fact perfectly accurate. And I will tell my readers that in the acknowledgments page or in the author's note. Um, I don't change the big things, but I will work with a t work with the timeline here and there for the sake of storytelling because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to overburden. I don't. I don't want to sacrifice absolute historical accuracy to. I don't want to sacrifice a good storytelling to making sure I get every. I include every single fact that I discover. Um, that's just, that's not good for the reader. And it's incredibly tedious for me to, if I had to write it that way. Sure. So, you know, this is a novel. I am allowed to do that. And, uh, it says so right on the cover. <laughs> so, um, but, but I do try to keep the, you know, the, the big important historical events as accurate as I can, where I have changed those sort of things. I do let my reader know later on, but, you know, in this particular novel, one of my narrative narrators is a historical figure but my two of my th two of my three narratives narrators are fictional characters so you know they're they're their histories based upon what the actual switchboard soldiers of the title experienced and what they knew but you know i'm not trying to write biography here um so uh but but the truth of what they experienced i think of what the real women experienced does come through my fictional characters. 
Gotcha. And and I'm curious, what what is your writing process when you're working on one of your historical novels? Is, is it a process where you do a lot of outlining and looking at kind of a timeline in terms of um, syncing that up with um, historical events um, prior to writing or um, what, what's what's kind of your process? Well, I start by doing just general read background reading so that I have a good foundation of understanding of the time and the place and the major figures who were involved in, you know, whatever event or story I'm trying, trying to tell. And this is usually where I, I start focusing on who my narrators should be and, you know, who I might want to use for my narrators, whether that is an actual historical figure, as in the case of Grace Banker, one of my narrators for this story, or, you know, I might say, well, I'd like some, a little piece of this woman's story and then a little piece of this woman's story in shaping some of my, my other narrators. And then from doing that broad background reading, then I narrow down on spe- specific topics I need to research more thoroughly. And as I'm doing that, I begin constructing a timeline so that I have a general understanding you know, pulling together the different resources, I create a a good understanding of the historical flow. And from that, I can start creating a sense of where my natural chapter breaks would fall. You know, what events I want definitely to include, um, what historical figures I certainly wouldn't want to leave out and things like that. And so I don't have a formal outline like the ones we learn in school. Mm-hmm. I do that for nonfiction writing. I find that a very useful tool for nonfiction writing. But for a novel, when I say outlining, what I mean is I typically write chapter one, the time period that it will probably cover. And then I list, I write a paragraph, not a list. I, I write a paragraph or two about what events need to take place in that chapter. And whether it's a a historical event that I want to include or character development that I want to make sure I include. And then I just kind of work on that outline, you know, all the way through the book. Once I start writing, which is the next step, very often, in fact, I can Always, the outline will change as I'm writing along, as I'm as I'm working through the first draft, because I'll realize, oh well, this actually took up one sentence in my outline, <laughs> but it actually covers two chapters worth of material. You know, once I'm into it, I see that. So that outline does evolve, and it sometimes it expands. Sometimes chapters get omitted, or I cut them out altogether. So it's it's not something that I strictly adhere to, but it does give me a good general sense of the direction I need to head in order to cover the important things I want to make sure I include in the book. That's great. Um, I'm curious if we could go back for a moment. What was your initial writing journey that led you to sit down and write and get your debut novel published? Well, I, I really have always wanted to be a writer. Ever since I learned how to read, which was was very young, further back than I remember, I've always wanted to share stories with other people the way my favorite beloved authors shared stories with me. So I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how one became a writer. So I went to school and I became an English major because 
I got to read a lot of books and discuss books passionately with other people who loved books. And I really got to focus on what for me made a story work and what kind of storytelling I enjoyed and what to me, where, where is, what's the source of the magic behind a great story that captivates readers and engages their emotions and their intellect and wants them to learn more and, and is deeply satisfying, even as it provokes new questions. And so I, I took one fiction writing class when I was an undergraduate and I still didn't know how one became a writer, but I still knew that I wanted to do that. So I went to graduate school because I wanted to keep reading and writing and writing about reading and discussing books passionately. And then after I got my master's degree in English language and letters, I went on to teach part-time as an adjunct faculty member at Penn State and University Park. And so I taught part-time and I began working on my first novel in the other part of my time. And then I, um, you know, I, I was, uh, writers, when they're just starting out, are always told, write what you know. That's the advice <laughs> I got. And I took that to heart. And I was and am a quilter. I still am a quilter. And I knew about the quilting community and the wonderful friendships that quilt quilters share and their inside jokes and their quirks and their quarrels. And I was also captivated by, of course, the history. You might have noticed I am fascinated by history. And uh, the folklore surrounding quilt blocks in the in the the wonderful picturesque quilt block names and all that they convey. And so I thought, well, okay, I know the quilting world. I'm going to write a novel about quilters. And that's how I started out. And I thought it would just be one book about quilters. That was called <laughs> The Quilter's Apprentice. And that came out in 1999. And then I um I thought I just assumed I would write about other things I am passionate about. But that book was well-received, and my publisher and my readers wanted another. And so I wrote a sequel, and readers wanted another. So I started a third, and it was at that point that I realized, okay, I guess I'm writing a, a series. <laughs> I realized it later than everybody else, but uh, that's, that's how the Elm Creek Quilts series got started. But even when I was writing the Elm Creek Quilts novels, as my readers and fans of that series know, I always did draw in a lot of American history and women's roles in American history. And then the stories that I wanted to tell just no longer fit within the world of Elm Creek Quilts. So that at, at some point I eventually, uh, you know, I, I broke free of, broke out of the, you know, the kind of the constraints of setting it within the world of Elm Creek Quilts. And I began writing standalone historical fiction, but I still have every so often gone back and I've written another Elm Creek Quilts novel too. So I haven't, you know, closed that down entirely. When the story that I want to tell fits within the world of Elm Creek Quilts, well, then it will be an Elm Creek Quilts novel. <laughs> and when it doesn't, as in the case of Switchboard Soldiers and the Women's March and other more recent books, then it will be a standalone historical novel. 
Sure. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Uh, Are you working on another novel now? I am actually. I just recently finished up a manuscript and revising it and is now going to the production process. And this too is another book that was inspired by research that I conducted for an earlier book. In this case, when I was writing Switchboard Soldiers, uh, there is a, there are some chapters that are set in Great Britain. Because when my switchboard soldiers came from the U.S., they landed in Liverpool, and then they set out from Southampton to go over to France. So I did do a little bit of research into women's roles in the U.K. during World War One, And I learned about um, women who... So there, there are two things that came together. I learned that just as in the U.S. in World War I and in World War II, in the U.K., women, too, were taking over all of these roles in the workplace that had traditionally been men's roles, but all the Tommies were over fighting in France and Belgium and elsewhere, Gallipoli and elsewhere. And I learned that women had taken over so many important roles in the munitions factories, making armaments, making bombs, making shells, making bullets, all of these things. And they were called munitionettes. And the work that they did working with these incredibly toxic chemicals um, had very harmful effects on their health and, and on, on, you know, on their general well-being and the women eventually, you know, they, they suffer as these health effects were becoming more and more impossible to ignore. Um, the women realized that, well, you know, the men risk their lives in the trenches. We risk our lives in the factories. That's our role. And so, but they bravely persisted because it was just absolutely essential for victory. And so that my, imp- how impressed I was. And how, how, how moved I was by their commitment to doing this dangerous work, despite the effects to their health, it was juxtaposed against 
this other thing that came about, this other aspect that I discovered that women be, took over for the men on the in the factories, but also on the football pitch. You know, we call it soccer over here. But, you know, all the men were over over fighting in professional football, a.k.a. soccer, had, Mm -hmm. you know, been pretty much shut down for the duration. And so women's football became (laughs) so predominant and women who had never really been encouraged before to, to maybe form teams, although they did, you know, just for fun, suddenly were taking to the pitch and they were you know, enjoying physical fitness and recreation. And they were providing this, you know, this, this wonderful sport that, you know, boosted morale, uh, not only on the home front, but also overseas where, you know, the Tommies, the soldiers could follow the football adventures of all these, uh, of all the women who were playing football. And so I juxtapose the story of the brave munitionettes working in incredibly dangerous conditions and how they found release through football and the competition and sports. And um, the women who worked in munitions, their skin acquired a yellow hue. And that was, that was a hint, you know, that, mm-hmm. that showed where they worked. But it was also a very striking sign of the damage to their health that their work incurred. And so they were called Canary Girls. That was the nickname that was given to them because oh. of the yellow hue their skin took on. And that is the title of the book that will be coming out in, in July of 2023, Canary Girls. Wow. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Well, the advice that that I always give is just read. Read voraciously read everything you can. And this is something I, you know, part of my, my journey as a writer when I was an undergraduate and I still read voraciously now, but before you can become a good writer, you first and foremost must be an active, engaged, enthusiastic reader. You know, read the books that you read books, like the ones you think you want to write, but also read outside of your own preferred genre to see what else is out there. And, you know, learn how stories are constructed. Learn what you love about good storytelling. Learn what you don't like. Learn what doesn't work for you. And I would say, you know, really think, think very critically about, you know, read, but also evaluate it. Read for enjoyment, but also read to learn. It's kind of undertaking your own education. And then I would say, support other authors, emerging authors, especially authors who are established, attend their book events, ask questions, you know, just as we're doing now, asking questions about the process Um, and, and, you know, and support other authors because someday you will want other people to be attending your book signings, to be learning about your process, to be supporting your work. So I'd say start as a voracious reader first, an active and engaged reader. And then I would say, when you're discovering what story you want to tell, um, you can write what you know, if that works for you, or you can write what you want to learn about, which is what I do now. You know, I find a compelling idea 
And then I, I investigate it and learn about it. And then I share that story. So whether you choose that path, one of those two paths or another, I would just say, make sure you work on it every day. Do some writing every day. Stick to it so it becomes a habit. And focus on just, you know, writing that little portion, just getting your daily writing done. If you think about, I have to write a novel, well, that can be a very daunting task. So don't focus on, I have to write a novel. Focus on that small portion that you need to do today. And then make it so that it's a habit, so you build consistency, so that it is a part of your daily routine. Until it becomes something so that if you don't do it, you just don't feel right. Your day just doesn't feel complete. If you wait until you find time to write, you are almost invariably not going to find it. You have to make time to get that writing done. You have to have the discipline and have that commitment. And then if you do work on it little by little, those write, those words, those paragraphs, those pages, those chapters add up. And over time, you will find yourself with a completed first draft that you can then work on and revise and shape into, you know, a completed novel. So start as a reader and then stick with it and do something every day. Someday you'll find that you can get, you'll have a wonderful day and you can get a whole page or more done. Some days, the best you can do is get a paragraph on the page. And that is the same with me. And, you know, Switchboard Soldiers is my 30-second novel. And I still have some days where it just seems to flow like magic and other days where it's like, you know, trying to, you know, shove rocks through a sieve. <laughs> but as long as you're committed to it every single day, it you will make progress and you will reach a point where you look back and say, wow, I, I, I really have something that I can, I can really work with this now. Um, but some days are more daunting than others. But just focus on, you know, just get that little bit done today. Some days it'll be a lot and you'll feel fabulous. But as long as you are committed to it and you're, and you're working on it and you make that time for yourself in your writing, it will pay off and you will get there. That's great advice. What books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, my gosh. Well, I love to read. Um, when I'm working on a manuscript, especially the, you know, the first draft, I tend to focus on a lot of history and biography that informs the research for the book. But mm -hmm. even then, it's important to take time for, for reading that is just for fun and just for enjoyment. And I do tend to read a lot of historical fiction because that's, you know, that's my favorite genre. It's what I mostly write, although I do a lot of contemporary stuff too. And so I do love to read historical fiction, but I also love to read excellent fiction in any genre. I would never limit myself to a, to, to a single genre. There's just too much great stuff out there to only focus on one genre. So, um, oh, let's see. One of my, one of my favorite historical novels that I've read recently is uh, The Women of the Copper Country that came out a couple of years ago, but it's still fairly recent, I think. And it's by Mary Doria Russell, who is one of my absolute very, very favorite authors. 
Mary Doria Russell is a masterful, masterful storyteller. And this novel is the account, an account of the Calumet, Michigan copper mining strike of 1913. And it is absolutely riveting. The, it's, uh, the main character is 25 year old, six foot one Annie Clements who's known as Big Annie, and she's a miner's wife, and she is in charge of this strike. The miners are demanding better wages and safer working conditions after just terrible injuries and gruesome deaths become commonplace. So they're asking, it's a, it's a struggle against you know, impossible odds, but Mary Doria Russell's eloquent prose and her flawless use of period detail and her absolutely fully realized characters, they are just alive on the page. They just make this an amazing, amazing read. In fact, if you like historical fiction, just do yourself a favor and read all of Mary Doria Russell's books. You will not be sorry and you will thank me later. Uh, (laughs) You will love them and they're amazing. That's wonderful. Um, Another book that I read just very recently is by another one of my very, very favorite authors whose work I absolutely love. And this is Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, Probably her best known work is Station Eleven. And that is absolutely one of my favorite books too. So I was so, so incredibly eager for this book to come out. And it also deals with a pandemic. There's also a pandemic involved in this, but what this book is so amazing in that it combines uh, speculative fiction and historical fiction, and all, all of all you know, time travel. Maybe I don't want to have too many spoilers, <laughs> but this is just an absolutely immersive book that I, I cannot recommend highly enough. It is just fantastic. Go and read this, and then if you haven't read Station Eleven, go and go back and read Station Eleven. That's wonderful too. And then do we do we have time for a third oh, recommendation? Oh, absolutely. Yes, sure. Okay, so this is another book that is that I just read very recently, although it did come out a uh, a couple of years ago, I think. Um and it's it just shows that you can't just stick to one genre. You've got to read all over because there's too many great books that you would miss. So this book is more of kind of a mystery thriller who done it kind of book. And I admit I don't that that's outside of what I usually read, but I am the the reviews for this book were so impressive. I thought I got and the and the subject matter was so compelling. I I read it and I am so glad I did. So the book is called The Violin Conspiracy, and it's by Brendan Slocum. And if you had to sum it up briefly, it would be about a violinist's search for his stolen Stradivarius. So he has this incredibly priceless Stradivarius violin. It goes missing. And there are a number of suspects. It could be any one of them or somebody completely else. And he is desperate to get this incredibly priceless instrument, which is really the key to his artistry and his music. He's absolutely determined to get it back. So that's the story you know, on the surface, but it's so much more than that too, because this particular violinist is black. And in the classical musical music world, 
That is a challenge. So what really drew me to this story when I first heard of it was how it was an exploration of a Black violinist's role in the classical music world and how he was excluded and the racism he faced. And the author himself is a Black man violinist, a Black male violinist, so he knows what he's talking about. And I love books that are told from an insider's perspective. I love it when someone knows this community or this event or this world intimately and is letting the rest of us know about it from a perspective that we would not be able to get on, on its own. And I love classical music. So that was really what drew me into this story. But it's not only so that you have this mystery and then you have this exploration of social issues, but then there's also this, throughout the entire story, while he's trying to get his violin back, while he's dealing with the struggles of being in a world that, as a Black man, he is often excluded from, there's also this very important violin competition, violin performance competition going on that he is a part of. So you also have this excitement over what's going to happen. Is he going to be able to get into this competition? What's going to happen when he gets there? What's it going to be like as he's trying to win this important prize? And yet somehow, you know, you'd think these could be three different books, but no, this author, Brendan Slocum, brings all of these narrative threads together so perfectly, so seamlessly, and in such a compelling fashion that, you know, any one of those could be a great book on their own, but he brings them all together in one narrative. So it's, again, it's not what I would usually pick up, but, you know, the the classical music story drew me in, and I'm so glad it did. So if any of those things appeal to you, uh, any of those ideas, pick this book up. You will not be sorry. Um, you're just going to have trust me on this one. It's 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 just a fantastic read. That's great. And I interviewed Brendan for the podcast. Oh, did you really? Yeah, oh, yeah. so I'm telling your reader, I'm telling your listeners something they already oh, know. Oh no, no. I mean that's oh, no. that's great. I mean if someone <laughs> if someone comes in and didn't listen to that interview, uh, definitely check out the Violin Conspiracy. It's a great. Yes, book. because. Jeff and I agree that this is a great book. So, you know, exactly. what more recommendation do you need than that? Exactly. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Kiavarini. Her latest novel is Switchboard Soldiers. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Jennifer, thanks so much for doing this interview. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. That was great. Marie glowed with pride and anticipation as her mother took her customary place in front of the gleaming grand piano in the gracious parlor of their Mount Auburn home. From the far side of the room, Marie glimpsed only the faintest traces of silver in her mother's honey gold hair, which she wore in an elegant knot on the back of her head, a few stray wisps curling around her lovely face. A fresh breeze through the open window stirred the lacy ruffle on the bodice of Maman's rose silk poplin gown carrying birdsong and a faint scent of wisteria from the garden, offering a momentary respite from the heat and humidity of the late summer afternoon. Maman could make her parlor seem as grand as a stage and a concert hall as intimate as a room in her own home. 
In everything, she was effortlessly graceful, poised, and stunningly beautiful, a manner her eldest daughter strove to emulate, but could not yet master. She often feared she never would. Her father sat before the piano, his long, supple fingers poised above the keys, the sunlight picking up the auburn highlights in his chestnut-brown hair, only slightly darker than Marie's own. Awaiting his cue, he gazed at his wife with the admiration everyone there shared, and the warm, enduring affection that was his and hers alone. A trickle of perspiration wended its way down Marie's back beneath her ivory muslin dress. Invisibly, she hoped. But like everyone else in the room, she held perfectly still, riveted by Maman's presence as she prepared to let her voice take flight. Squeezed between her two younger sisters on a small sofa behind their guests' chairs, Marie waited, breathless, for the first exquisite notes. When little Aimée mewed a complaint and squirmed about for a better view, Marie clasped her hand to settle her down. She took Sylvie's hand too, although at 15 Sylvie knew how to behave properly at a concert, even a casual one among friends such as this. In reply, Sylvie squeezed her hand and flashed a quick smile. As often as they heard their mother sing, they never tired of it. Nor did any of their parents' friends, who had gathered there for their weekly musicale, most of them colleagues from the Conservatory of Music, longtime friends from the City Opera Company, or new acquaintances from the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Their Tuesday afternoon gatherings had become a favorite summertime tradition ever since the Miosek family had come to America two years before. So Marie's father, a renowned pianist, composer, and music historian, could accept a professorship at the conservatory. The provost had sweetened the deal by offering Maman a position on the voice faculty. Papa liked to claim that the provost had really wanted the magnificent diva Josephine Miosek, and had recruited him only to acquire his otherwise unobtainable wife. Whenever he said such things, Maman would gaze heavenward, shake her head, and murmur demurrals. But the warmth and the sidelong smile she gave her husband told the three sisters that he had charmed her once again. Marie longed for a love like theirs someday, and she knew Sylvie did too. They often confessed their hopes and dreams to each other, but only late at night after Aimée had fallen asleep. Although Aimée was a darling, she was too young to understand, and she might accidentally blurt out an embarrassing secret in front of their parents, or worse yet, their neighbors or classmates. Sylvie alone knew how much Marie wanted to be like their mother, to travel the world as she had done at the height of her career, enchanting audiences in the glorious concert halls of Europe, performing iconic roles in the world's most hallowed opera houses, garnering rave reviews on both sides of the Atlantic, inspiring the greatest composers of the era to create songs perfectly suited for the unique timbre of her own voice. Ever loyal, Sylvie never cautioned Marie to set her sights a little lower, never admitted aloud what Marie had begun to suspect as she completed her first year at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. That she indeed had a lovely voice, but fervent hope and diligent study could take her only so far. If she persisted, she would surely become better than she was now as a mere girl of 19. But would that be enough? Or would all that she desired forever remain just beyond the touch of her fingertips? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.